0: For some people, there's no separation between creativity and their everyday life. Their house, their clothes, even the food they eat is a work of art.
1: So much pleasure. Like, it gives me way more pleasure to see somebody wearing something that I've made than for me to wear something I've made myself. Like, that, every time I see someone wearing something I've made, I'm like, ah, that's like a hundred times more pleasurable to me than if I wear something and I'm like, oh, yeah, I made this myself. <laughs> Ho-hum.
0: <laughs> That's Dr. Annie Werner, academic, sewist, knitter, builder of houses, maker of furniture, carver of spoons, and lover of all the colours. I'm Jennifer Macy, and this is In the Making, a podcast by Makeshift that explores creativity as a prescription for challenging times. A glimpse into Annie Werner's straw bale home that she hand built with her partner and two children is pure delight. Paintings from friends hang on the walls that are a bit wonky. An uncurated collection of teacups hangs in the kitchen, overflowing with hand-grown veggies and fruits. Annie's Instagram feed is busting with handmade knitted jumpers and shawls for friends. Handmade dresses in vintage fabrics, reclaimed from old tablecloths, sheets or op-shops. As Annie says, she always has her woolen knitting needles with her wherever she goes, to the shopping or to academic conferences, as she finds the act of knitting both calming and grounding. The one time she couldn't knit or crochet was while she was receiving chemotherapy treatment for breast cancer. In this episode, we talk about living with cancer, about what she packed in the car when her house was threatened by the black summer bushfires her knitting, and how she built her colourful, handmade life. And a heads up, this conversation may be confronting for some people, so just take care while listening. My name is
1: Annie. I live on beautiful Duranganch country uh, on the far south coast of New South Wales on seven acres of valley hill kind of land. I live in an off-grid straw house that I built myself with my partner and some of our friends helping. My creative practice is mostly sewing and knitting, but I also do a bit of crochet and embroidery. Uh, Well, I've only started knitting in the last three or four years. Um, I learned to sew and crochet from my mum when I was a child, basically. My mum's pretty crafty, like always sewing and and always crocheting. And so it's kind of always just around me. It seems natural. But I also, from a very young age, have had quite a... um, individual style of clothes. Like I've always had a really particular way of wanting to dress and it's not something that's readily available in shops. (laughs) And so um, my mum was really instrumental in empowering me to make my own clothes, like to go, Oh, you want this weird thing? Well let's just make it. So that was kind of amazing. And when I was little we used to make like crocheted replicas of my pets and things like that. Like you know, kind of wacky, wacky cute things. Um when I had cancer the first time, um, and I was having chemo and I was kind of laying down a lot, I was crocheting everything, like anything that would sit still. I would put a crochet on it <laughs> and um and so that was I got pretty hard on crochet then and then I started knitting when I discovered a knitwear designer called Stephen West who makes these kind of really wild colorful um, amazing things and I just was like I just want to make those things so I taught myself to knit jumped really in the deep end like the first thing I ever made was quite complex (laughs) um and just totally took off like never looked back knitting is just I can't even think about my life pre-knitting it's like how what what was I doing with myself before I learned to knit
0: (laughs) and so that was only three years ago yeah about three years ago I think wow So how often would you
1: sew? How often do you knit? Oh, okay. So I knit every day. I always have my knitting with me. Like don't go anywhere with it. Even just to the shops, I'll take it because I'm always like, what if the car breaks down and I'm stuck on the side of the road and I don't have my knitting with me? (laughs) (laughs) So I often will have it with me and I don't actually need it or I don't get an opportunity to do it, but... And people often say to me, how do you get so much done? It's like, because I literally, like if I'm sitting down for two minutes, like I'm actually just can't believe I don't have my knitting with me right now. But if I'm sitting down, I will, I've got this badge that says if I'm sitting, I'm knitting because that's so true. And I actually, I'm like, I'm quite a high energy kind of person. So uh, having something to do with my hands is very comforting for me and kind of, grounds me um so yeah I would knit definitely every day so knitting every day sewing I would say maybe three times a week but I can also have times of not sewing at all um I'll get a bit pooped or I won't be feeling inspired or we just actually don't need any clothes <laughs> because kind of have got a lot
0: um so your work is quite intellectual too I guess How would you describe the creativity fitting into that?
1: Yeah. So I teach English and sociology at university and I am teaching over Zoom at the moment. Mm. Well, I knit, like if I'm listening to lectures or if I'm in meetings, I always knit, always have my knitting with me. Um, It keeps me really focused in, like keeps me very present in what's going on to have some, have to be busy with my hands. And, you know, like if I go to a conference or yeah, any kind of academic gathering, I always have craft with me, which is actually pretty common. Like there's quite a few of my colleagues will also have knitting with them and, you know, it gives you something to keep your hands busy and it really stops my mind from wondering if I'm knitting.
0: That's interesting. Why do you think that is?
1: I think for me personally it's because I have a really busy brain I kind of only realised maybe in the last 10, 15 years that not everyone's brain works in the way that my brain is. Like I described it to someone. I was like, it's like, you know when you're watching like CNN or one of those news channels and there's like the main screen but then there's like three side screens and then there's like the little tape thing running along the bottom with all like the other words. I was like, that's like my brain. And people were like, ah, that's that's not really like my brain. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. And so I've got this busy brain. So I think the active knitting is instead of it being like an extra thing that in addition to all of my other things, it brings me to the room that I'm in, like the space that I'm in or the conversation I'm engaged in, the knitting helps me focus on that thing that I'm present with. So it turns the CNN channel into one channel? Pretty much. Maybe like two or three. <laughs> less, <laughs> less than normal. <laughs> sewing, I think, because I've been doing it for so long, and I do tend, like I don't really overstretch myself with sewing. Like I recently just made Genevieve, um a Bloomsbury blouse and it's like a high neck and a ruffle and it's pretty hectic. And like that was a day of full concentration on the sewing, but like how hard that was made me realise how much I don't normally concentrate with sewing. Like it's, I've just been doing it for so long and so much, like I've had times in my life where I've sewed for markets or for shops. So I pretty much have never not made my own clothes. Um, But it's always been super colourful. Like I'm not one of those sewers who just makes like a homemade version of the thing you can get at the shop. Like, you know, I've only just started sewing with patterns. So that's after probably 35 years of sewing. I've only just started using patterns because my mum just taught me to sew what I wanted and like just really enabled me to make that happen from scratch really which at the time and like for all those years that I was doing it that way just seemed really normal and then I'd meet people and they'd be like how did you just start cutting into that piece of fabric and then make a dress but it just seemed kind of like a natural process for me because that's how I'd always done it. Like for Christmas, my friend gave me a thumb drive full of sewing patterns, and that's been my entry into the world of pattern sewing. So that's been kind of a fun thing. But I'm also still just, you know, like Genevieve just had a, my, Genevieve, my partner just had a birthday, and I made her a few items of clothing, and like they were all just kind of self-drafted things. Like she described what she wanted, and I um,
0: made them for her. That's called pattern cutting, isn't it? Pattern mm. drafting? Well, the thing is, I don't actually draft a pattern. Like,
1: I just actually start cutting up the material and then I sew it together. So, um, so you know, I kind of on Instagram will often say, this is from a self-drafted pattern, which makes it sound like I made a paper thing, but I literally never do that. So, it's a bit misleading, really. <laughs>
0: Does that mean that you're just able to see in 3D, like you can Mm. visualise how this flat piece of Mm -hmm. fabric is going to turn into what is essentially a sculptural object?
1: Yeah, I think um, that is definitely it. Sewing for Genevieve, like she's definitely the person I sew for the most and I really understand her body and what bits she needs to fit in a particular way where. I've been sewing for her for 17 years so that's like it's quite intuitive now like sewing for myself used to be a bit like that but my body has changed quite a lot since I had a double mastectomy and then I've also been on hormone therapy for the last two years which has put me through a pretty hardcore chemical menopause which has changed the shape of my body a lot as well like I actually don't understand what my body is like anymore um, so that's kind of I guess in a way that's why I enjoy sewing for Genevieve because it's like, ah, (laughs) I know what you're like.
0: I know what suits you. Let's do that. (laughs) What happens if you miss, if you forget the knitting or you have a period where you don't practice the knitting mm-hmm. or the crocheting or even the sewing? Well, luckily that
1: doesn't really happen that often because <laughs> um, I think I'm pretty aware that I need it. Like we went overseas last year and on our like return journey, there was a mishap with our luggage and I ended up packing my knitting project, which was meant to see me through this like 26-hour transit time. I accidentally packed it in my checked luggage and I didn't have it. And no. it was just like <laughs> um, like I literally cried. It was just so bad. So yeah, I do. I get a bit, um I think I get a little bit anxious if I don't have my knitting with me. Like it's pretty comfort mode, but yeah, I can't even remember a time when I would have had even a week of not making something.
0: Does it provide comfort in that it switches off the worry? Mm. I think it's more that grounding,
1: being present kind of thing because you have to be quite present with what you're doing and, you know, that's like a major tenet of all kinds of meditation and um, mindfulness mindfulness practice. Yeah. So I think it's like for me, it's a version of mindfulness. Like I've never gotten into meditation or yoga, but I think knitting and other kinds of craft satisfies that for me anyway. Like and building as well. I think you're very present. You're in your body, you know, your craft is very embodied. Um, It does a bit of that kind of meditation thing obviously cancer is like the big health thing that i'm facing but i think as well mental health wise aside from cancer like i've always had moments of depression or anxiety like various mental health things um and i would say that the craft stuff is mostly helpful with that side of my my health um But also, I guess, with the changing body stuff from cancer, which is very kind of material um, issue, being able to make my own clothes that fit me well, that's very empowering as well. Mm. Like I feel like so often, maybe every day, I think, God, imagine if you just had to buy clothes. Like what would that be like? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I've sewn so many garments in my life that it's pretty a lot of it is very second nature and so um sewing actually doesn't focus me in the same way that knitting does maybe because knitting is still a new thing yeah they're a different animal to me I think even though they're both craft and they're both doing things with my hands they excite and kind of satisfy different parts of me
0: About your cancer story. So I think I was about thirty-five.
1: I got diagnosed with ductal carcinoma in situ, which is um, like cancer in the ducts, I guess. Uh, and but also two tumours. Um, and I had chemotherapy and a double mastectomy.
0: Um, Did you feel lumps or like because thirty-five is pretty no. young?
1: Yeah, it was young. Um, I had a bleeding nipple and I went into the doctor and she was like, oh, that's not good. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, it happened really quickly from there. Um, And it was quite aggressive, so they took action very quickly We were living in a tiny house, which is 24 square metres, the four of us. No running water. Like, we had a bucket toilet, um, just a fire bath was our only kind of cleaning situation. Um, We are totally off grid. We were running a chicken farm and a small species abattoir. um, And, yes, we had this kind of pretty wild life. And then it was like, oh, and also cancer. (laughs) Like, so many things as well that I felt really surprised by, like... Um, You know, they go, oh, a bit of nausea, and then it's like, that's not a bit of nausea, like, that's not what that's like. And, you know, like, um, you know, so many different side effects and so many different kind of pains and bodily aches and um, just kind of, yeah, it's just really full-on experience, like definitely the most full-on thing I've ever been through, in my body.
0: And then the whole tiny house stuff. I mean, Mm. I think a lot of people might even struggle to live like that. Like, it's like camping. Mm.
1: But then, Mm -hmm. you know,
0: when you are sick, you sort of do want to just have a shower, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: It was like, we had friends in town and I could go and have showers at their place. But like, you know, we was all sleeping in a loft and I couldn't climb the ladder. So I was sleeping outside. (laughs) It was the middle of winter. And also because of the bucket toilet, like my poo and everything was cytotoxic after you have chemo. So you're meant to like, you know, when we were kind of going in for the briefing, they were like, oh, and you've got to flush the toilet twice. I was like, okay, um, we actually don't have a flushing toilet. We've got a bucket. <laughs> and they were like, Oh, okay, well you're gonna need a different bucket. Um and maybe just dig a hole right in the middle of a paddock away from any tall trees and that can be your toilet. Really? <laughs> Yeah, cuz it's super toxic. So, um that was like my winter um of that year was pooping in a hole in the middle of the paddock and sleeping outside. <laughs> And crocheting anything that would sit still.
0: Did you crochet while you were having the chemo? Because you have to sit there for ages, don't you, with just the poison going? Um,
1: yeah, I couldn't crochet when I was actually having the chemo. Two reasons. One is you've, you've got a cannula in your hand, so you can't really move your hand. But also um, they put a lot of ice packs on your hand to stop your fingernails from falling out. So <laughs> I couldn't do any crochet. Also, this on my second chemo, I had a... Um, I think they said like my body was shutting down to stop the poison from coming into my body. So I had like this emergency situation and then on the next chemo after that they had to sedate me to stop my body from doing that again. So for my – all the chemos after my second one I was basically passed out because they'd sedated me. Right. um, Which was fine by me because it was disgusting. Um, So, yeah, I unfortunately could not crochet – in the chair (laughs) but you know like once I got home and because I'm really active and I really love getting things done and building and being productive and making stuff like all the time and it's actually a huge part of my identity so it was really nice to be able to do something a bit gentle while I was lying around. It was just a really comforting thing to kind of do with my hands and remember that I could still make things even though I was a bit you know, incapacitated in other ways. Um, and I couldn't help with the farm at all because I was immune compromised so I couldn't go anywhere near the chickens. Genevieve so was doing that all by herself. Um, and that was pretty hard because that was something that we had worked really hard on together and then I was kind of excluded from that. So it was nice just to be able to crochet. and made a lot of presents for people. Like I did a lot of stuff to kind of just give away, um, which is Basically, most of my craft I give away. Like, I don't make that much stuff for myself.
0: And like, and when you say you're giving away, it feels almost empowering in a sense because, I guess at that time you would have had to rely on lots of help from lots of people. So,
1: oh, totally. We were very dependent on lots of people helping us. Um, You know, coming around to help with the farm, helping with the kids, helping like we had friends doing our laundry and bringing us meals, like all that kind of stuff. and it never really felt like a reciprocal kind of thing of like, oh, you have helped me in this way, so I will make you this thing. Um, like, I just actually love giving, like in kind of my actions or giving material presents. Like, I'm just like fanatical about giving presents to people. <laughs> um, and it actually gives me so much pleasure. Like it gives me way more pleasure to see somebody wearing something that I've made than for me to wear something I've made myself. Like that, every time I see someone wearing something I've made, I'm like, ah, that's like a hundred times more pleasurable to me than if I wear something and I'm like, oh yeah, I made this myself. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) well, (laughs) ho-hum. I love acts of service. Like I like helping people, but I couldn't even help myself, let alone help people. So it was nice to be like here's a little crocheted thing that I made.
0: <laughs> How did you face those bodily changes? Because a, a double mastectomy is pretty full on. That's yeah, a- and I had
1: big boobs too. <laughs> <Like it> was, <laughs> it was a, um, and I chose not to get a reconstruction for lots of different reasons, like kind of political reasons, feminist reasons. Um, I really resented the fact that that would be paid for by Medicare? I was like, "Mm." like, sure, yes, I understand the reasons for that. Like some women feel really devastated that they've lost their boobs and it's a mental health care thing to enable them to have a reconstruction. I'm like, but why do we live in a society where that is the way to make people feel better? And I've done a lot of academic writing about that as well. I also was just like, oh, a foreign thing in my body. And, you know, you hear these horror stories of people's implants exploding and then having to go back to hospital like multiple times. I was Mm -hmm. like, I just want to be done with that. And readjusting to having a flat chest was kind of different. Um, Liberating in some ways, sad in some ways. Like sometimes... I still do go, oh, maybe I should have got a reconstruction. This dress would look nicer if I had boobs. Like (laughs) that kind of stuff. (laughs) Like I kind of see it as an exercise in just going like challenging that part of myself. Like why why do I think that would look better with boobs? Like what is that about? Yeah, so relearning my body shape was partly about the boob thing but partly about like putting on weight when I had the hormone therapy and like just that menopausal shape change. Like that's been quite pronounce like I don't I have this diff, really different body shape now so your clothes don't fit well, I mean, they do because I'm constantly revising things. It's more that like the things that used to suit me for so for my whole life, like if I wear this kind of style of skirt with this kind of thing, like I you know how you get that yeah. sense of what suits your body and then all of a sudden that was like all out the window. It was like, oh, okay, <laughs> starting from scratch. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm still like experimenting now, I'm like, oh, okay, well, how does that look? But I'm also really always drilling down into how I feel and trying to not really think about how I look, like just go, oh, well, I want to make these pants, like these pants that I'm wearing now, they've got these cats all over them and big pockets on the side. And some people would say, oh, those pants don't suit your body style, but I actually really like them and (laughs) they feel good and comfy and they've got all the things I want. So I'm really kind of drill down, I'm trying to drill down into how things make me feel rather than how they look because I feel like that obsession with looks is something worth challenging. Definitely. And that's why, like, Genevieve is such a muse for me because she's very tall. She's a real pair, like, beautiful pair. And shop clothes for her, we often just go, I just don't even know what you would buy or where you would buy it and how it would look or fit on you. It's just so inspiring to me to sew for someone who can't find clothes in a shop. And I'm actually doing a really exciting sewing project for a woman who my dad's girlfriend is a carer and she's got a client who's the same age as me and she's got, I think, MS. So she's she's obese, she's chair-bound, she's bariatric, so she has a bag and a permanent catheter and she's got frontal lobe damage and she just has to wear the ugliest clothes because people can't find things to fit her and it's all synthetic fabric and disgusting colours and she's – so irate about having to wear these ugly clothes and she's like, people think that just because I'm in a chair and I'm fat and I've, you know, that I have to wear this ugly shit and I don't want to buy this stuff. Like she's really, really irate. So I'm making her some lots of clothes that kind of fit her needs but are also nice, natural fabrics and nice to wear and look beautiful and she's going to choose the fabric so she's empowered and it's not just her carers going to the shops and buying her like whatever junk is on the thing so that is just so joyous to me to be able to do that because I do just feel like oh there's so many people in the world who just have to wear ugly clothes because that's all they
0: have access to (laughs) (laughs) but if we talk about the creativity Mm -hmm. where does the creativity come in because this all feels like really practical solutions to Mm -hmm. you know things Mm -hmm. or how do you see that crossover
1: Oh, well, for me, it's just like my wildest dreams. Like I want a fully long lemon print jumpsuit. I can just make that. Or I want, like recently I made a dress out of a sheet that was like green love hearts, going to put some bunny buttons on it, pink trim, like wildest dreams kind of thing. Like there's no limit to what I can create or and there's no limit to what colours I can put together and there's no limit to what patterns I can put together. Yeah, I just don't really like limits. (laughs) No limits. And I think like, that's the thing about as well, making the house, you know, like I was able to just go, okay, well, I want this and I want this and I want this. Which is Um, like, for example, I want pink window shutters. Pink window shutters, yellow, like fully lime yellow window shutters and like a conventional house. You can't just go to a normal builder. Can you just do all this wacky stuff? (laughs) Um, Like even not straight walls, like we don't have really straight walls in our house, they're, and that's like partly by accident, but partly like when we were rendering them, and that's one of the things I love about straw bow walls, is they're really organically shaped. <laughs> I was kind of half joking but also half serious um, with our friend Belle who was helping us render. I was like, it's like a, it's a feminist issue, these straight lines and right angles <laughs> that people put us in houses. <laughs> so, you know, I'm kind of like embrace the wonkiness. And part of it is because I'm not a trained builder and I don't actually know how to make things straight. But a part of it is also like I actually don't care about making things straight. I'm not interested in doing that. I So I built this little craft en suite off our bedroom. Of course, none of it's straight. <laughs> So I had all these like weird gaps around the windows and I just shoved pom-poms into them. <laughs> <It's> just, like <laughs> solution. <laughs> um, so yeah my craft room's kind of like clad in pom-poms inside. But yeah, I just love that creativity and just being like, oh, well, the rules say you got to do it this way, but also this other way works and that is just so fun and empowering to me. That's why I love making
0: stuff. <laughs> uh, how much sense of satisfaction do you get also when you're, you're living in your house that you've built by hand oh. and created? It's
1: amazing it's my favorite most proudest achievement and it's really imperfect there's so many things that if you were a professional builder or even a person with attention to detail (laughs) you'd like walk into our house and be like oh gaps I see everywhere but I also you know so many stories in the house as well like for when we raised the walls we had like 25 people friends and strangers came from all over and stayed with us and helped us put the walls up. And, you know, some of the people who helped were our very, very dear friends and then other people just kind of came by. And so it's just like living in a story in a way, like every day. You go, oh, yeah, that." remember when we did that bad thing? Like it's just like like the story of our dining table, for example. So Genevieve always had this dream of being able to have a big enough table to fit everybody in. I was like, I'm going to make you that table. So I had like bridge timbers and old wooden fence palings and I was like, I'm just going to build it in situ because then I'll know exactly what size and shape it can be, right? So so I made the top of it on the floor in the dining room and then, because I hadn't thought it through, it was like, oh, that's actually too heavy to lift and I need to sand it. So I need to take it outside. So just like three people, we kind of like just edged out the door. I sanded it all down and then... The legs are like these massive bridge timbers that I got at an auction and it took like two people to carry in each leg and then we laid out all the legs and then me and my dad and my friend and Genevieve all lifted the tabletop up onto it. And the whole thing is so heavy. Like none of it's fixed together. It all just kind of stays there because it's just enormous. (laughs) It's just, yeah. (laughs) Like we can fit 22 people around the table. Wow! I get to tell that story so many times and people are always like, There's this real sense of joy of, like, that's cool that you made that table, but also it's not this perfect thing and there were all of these kind of hurdles along the way, but that really feeds into why it's a joyful thing to, like, be a part of. You've built this
0: beautiful house and... And right behind you I can see you're in your sewing room and all your pictures on the walls and all your threads beautifully. Are they, like, rainbow-coordinated or...? Mm, they're not as rainbow-coordinated as, as,
1: as I would like them to be. I do love a rainbow coordination, but, um, you know, they're loosely grouped into colour.
0: Yeah, and you're surrounded <laughs> by all your fabrics and... And you've got this house that you've hand-built mm-hmm. and then there are bushfires. mm mm-hmm. What does that feel like? <laughs> well, uh, it
1: was awful. Like, like, the individual trauma and the community trauma of those bushfires is so ongoing and it's like nine months later now and... Um, people are still really living that in a daily way because there's just so many reminders of it. Like everywhere you go, you can see burned out stuff. People still haven't had their houses taken away. There's still people like living in caravans in their burnt out blocks. And, you know, we've got friends who, well, Genevieve's like my parents-in-law lost their house and close friends lost their houses. So it's very real and very present. It's not, oh, bushfires, they're over. There's not smoke and orange sky all the time anymore, but it's still like,
0: oh, that's really still alive. Um, Did it feel more threatening to your family that the bushfires were coming close to your house considering that? And not to say that other people haven't invested because when you lose a house, it is devastating Mm. just. Yeah.
1: I think it is different though. Like people, like we know people who i just like, oh, no, I'll just walk away from the house. doesn't matter. I can buy all new stuff. Like there's very clear, people have that very clear attitude. I do not feel like that at all because our house is like a whole lifetime of collected and made stuff. But our plan was always to stay and defend the house because I just was like, this house is two and a half years of every thought, all my physical energy, so much planning, like the financial stuff, It's like just such a huge investment that I just was like, I'm not walking away from this house. Like I'm not walking away to let it burn. So our plan was always to stay and defend, but we were doing like a practice run of how we would defend the house and our pump, our firefighting pump clapped out. So we ended up having to walk away from the house, which was like hard because it's not what we had planned to do. I didn't want to do it. But I also felt very strongly that it was the right thing to do. Like, it would have just been stupid, like beyond stupid to stay and try and defend without a firefighting pump or with a broken firefighting pump. Um, So I knew that's what we had to do. Um, It was also a very adrenalised decision because it was like bang, bang, bang. Oh, fire pump's broken. We have to leave. There was no time to kind of agonise over
0: it. Did it feel more heartbreaking knowing that? The house wasn't just a house that you could replace. It was that, mm. you know, two years of hand-built creativity. like
1: For sure. Well, also it was like, yeah, as we drove away, we were like, we're not doing that again. Like we can't, I could not build a house like this again. It's like, I'm done with that. Because <laughs> we also built our tiny house. We've actually built two houses. I'm just a bit spent from that. Like I'm super glad I did it. It's the best thing I ever did. Don't want to do it again.
0: Couldn't do it again. So how long were you away? How long were you away for? We were away
1: from for about three days. Um, we went into town to our friend's place. So there was a Saturday where the forecast was just awful and the message that everyone received in the whole Bega Valley was we are only going to defend Bega Town If you stay and defend your house, you're going to be on your own. Bigger town's all we can focus on. So that's your safest place to be. And the fire prediction map had our home in it. So, yeah, we went into town to a friend's place and there was a moment on that Saturday where we actually got three notifications that our house had burned down. So we had three separate sources telling us that the fire was at our place. Um, And so we were just in town just, like, losing it, basically, because we're like, this is, like, it's happening. Um, So, you're already in grief mode. Totally. And we were already in grief mode as well, because um, Genevieve's parents' house had already burned down, and so many people had already, and I was in so much grief for the bush and the animals, like, that was actually not the biggest but, like, as big a part of it for me Um, Mm. because that's part of the reason we moved here, you know, is this incredible landscape. So that all being gone was really heavy. I think because it was so huge and widespread, it also... Like, my grief and trauma was not just for what might happen to our house or what we thought had happened to our house, but it was just for, like, our whole community. And, like, I look back sometimes at the emails and the text messages I sent during those few days, and it's very, like, I don't know how our community is going to come back from this. Like, it was very – the focus actually wasn't so much on – our house or what might happen to our house. It was really like, what is happening to our place? It was bigger. And yeah, it was much bigger. And and it was so much frustration at mismanagement of the land and the fucking government and, you know, all of that stuff. There's a lot of feelings in there. That's part of the trauma as well is like, oh, that's actually kind of preventable, so. And climate change. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And were you knitting the whole time? Um, Knitting, playing some games, like really bizarre, like literally at the time when I thought our house is on fire I was just sitting at the table with tears streaming down my face playing like this card game (laughs) it was just the most bizarre time and also because there was no night or day so it was really that weird jet lag feeling and we were in town at our friend's house with all of these other people who'd also evacuated who also thought their properties were burning down and their house was chockers and there was all pets in there (laughs) it was just like It was just so surreal and full on. (laughs) But yes, I did have my knitting with me. (laughs) What did you pack in the car? The knitting first? Yeah, I packed knitting, heaps of yarn, all my projects, (laughs) my donkey collection, my favourite things I'd already knitted, favourite handmade clothes. Um favourite artworks, like what can we literally not replace? That's what we took.
0: What was it like coming back then to the house and just walking in as a family again? Was there relief?
1: Not yet
0: because we when
1: we came back we were still under threat and we were actually under threat for weeks. Like there was three fires burning within like 10 to 20 kilometres of us for weeks and it was really just the luck of the wind that meant that we didn't get hit again. So we didn't actually start to relax. I would say months, like even after the fire went out, um, we had big rain and put the fires out. We were still on edge for quite a long time. And fire bath is a really big ritual in our house. And the first time I lit a fire bath after the bushfires, I went into this state of panic, even though I was lighting a fire in a controlled base and a thing that I'd done hundreds of times before I was really like oh, smoke what? like went into full panic mode I was like no wait <laughs> I'm in control of this fire this is my fire <laughs> um and so I think fire bathing has actually been a real like reconnecting with my relationship with fire and um and and things like a beautiful orange sunset, I'm like, orange on the horizon. Oh, no, wait, (laughs) that's the sun. (laughs) Yeah, it was several weeks, close to two months of living in this extreme panic state with fires all around and lots of community trauma. So, yeah, we didn't relax for ages.
0: (laughs) Yeah, wow, that's really sustained trauma, isn't it?
1: Totally, yeah, totally. And I think, yeah, we were all in, like, adrenal distress (laughs) and (laughs) And also like as parents, you kind of always trying to keep things safe for the kids, like not have them panicking. You know, they kind of take it in their strides, like kids in their classes, houses that burned down, or or well, their own grandparents. They just really took it in stride. Like, oh, we're evacuated. It doesn't get light anymore and there's orange sky everywhere. That's just what's happening this week. Like <laughs> just kind of really but you know, we had to keep our panic under wraps.
0: Have you shared your love of crafting and making with them, with your children? Yeah, totally. I was, not now because of
1: COVID, um, but I was a craft guardian at their school, so they went to a Steiner school. And so I was always in school helping with the craft, going into the classes helping with the craft, um, and obviously they just always see me doing craft. But they're not actually that into it now They kind of have phases of wanting to create things and Olive, my eldest, is very, very artistic, does amazing drawings and paintings and stuff. I'm like, well, we've got all this equipment here. If you ever want to make anything, let me know. (laughs) I can do it. And Olive recently got a pet ferret and they just felt really empowered to make a giant cage for that ferret. And, like, you know, all the tools were there and they were familiar with the tools and they were familiar with wood and screws and all that. So it was just kind of really natural for them to be able to do that for themselves. And that's, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's cool. That's that's the feeling. Not like, I want you both to be knitting all the time, but more just like, I want you to know that you can make things for yourself and you can make them however you want. You can just do that. And that's a cool thing to be able to do.
0: Mm, that's a great thing to be able to do. Yeah, That's resilience. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, how have you found your craft and your creativity now that like the second time round that you found out about the cancer, did you turn to your craft and your practice for for comfort? Mm,
1: I think this time round has just been too big. Like it's I think it's been a real emotional intellectual journey for me. That's not been handicraft based. Like, I feel like the handcrafts kind of like, give me joy and give me mental relief I guess uh, in that they manage my anxiety they kind of manage my depression and other things and it's also just like reminding me who I am because it has been something that I've done for so long it's like ah all of these crazy shit's going on there's weird things growing in my body but I'm still super good at knitting can still make presents for my friends and so for my wife and like do all of those things that have been a constant and I think that's kind of what I need to focus on is like I still – because it can become like really doom and gloom of like, oh, my God, the secondary cancer and whoa. Um, but I think like psychologically it's really important to go still have an amazing life, like such a beautiful, amazing life that we have built in this really kind of um, determined and um, intentional way. I have that life. And I have these craft things that I've always done and in a way I'm just getting better at those crafts because cancer made me be a bit more city down <laughs> so I get more practice time. Um, so I think it's really good to just focus. I can I can still make my whatever crazy outfit I want and I can still, like, make beautiful things for my friends and see them looking beautiful in the things that I've made for them. So that's the comfort
0: that I get from the craft. So what do you think is one creative thing that a listener can do? Because often, you know, people think, oh, I don't have a creative bone in my body or it's too hard or this won't look good or I can't, you know, it's too hard to learn how to make it look perfect or straight lines. So what's like one tip?
1: One. (laughs) Well, first of all, I would say straight lines are overrated. Just don't give yourself a hard time if you can't get straight lines. Bad. (laughs) Um, Just embrace the flow. Embrace your own sense of like wonder and imagination and don't like limit yourself. Like don't go, oh, I can't do that. That's a bit weird. Or I can't do that. Those colours don't go. Like just forget all those rules. If you want to do something, just do that and make it happen. And, And it might not work. But it might work and it'll be amazing. Or even if it doesn't work, you will still have had fun doing it. Um, Yeah, have fun and don't beat yourself up about it if things don't work because sometimes they don't work and sometimes they're cooler if they don't work.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What do you do with the things that don't work? Make them into something else. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks very much for talking to me. Oh, thanks. It was really fun. (laughs) A big thank you to Annie Werner. Knitter, sewist and builder of a beautiful handmade life. To see all of her handmade creations, Annie's Instagram handle is Dr Annie Autumn. In the Making podcast is by Makeshift, a support and education agency connecting creativity and mental health for social change. Discover more about how creative practices are good for your health at makeshift.org.au and you can get 10% off our Press Play programs with the code making. If you want to learn how to support your friends and family who may be going through a difficult time, you can also sign up to one of our Mental Health First Aid courses. They're really good. For more, follow Makeshift on Instagram and Facebook. If this episode has brought up any issues or triggers for you, you can contact Beyond Blue on 1300 2246... That's one If you enjoyed this podcast series, please leave us a review on your favourite podcasting app. It really does help spread the word. Or even better, just grab your friend's phone and hit subscribe on their podcasting app. Or you can just tell them to listen. The theme song, Bring Down Those Walls, was written and performed by Alana Stone. Additional music by Smith and the Devil. Our sound engineer is Chris Hancock. Logo and cover art are by Chiara Mucci. You can find links to all their work in our show notes. Makeshift was co-founded by Caitlin Marshall and Lizzie Rose. I'm Jennifer Macy. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast was produced on the land of the Wadi Wadi people of the Darawal Nation. I acknowledge and pay my respects to the original storytellers, weavers and artists of this land.
1: I